Hello there. So today I'm going to read a little bit from Charles Freeman's book, The Closing of the Western Mind, The Rise of Faith and Fall of Reason, um, which was published, I think, in about 2000-ish, 2000, 2001, 2002. Anyway, um, roughly about that time. Uh, it's... An argument that the Greek rash—I mean, sorry—the the book contains the argument that the, or rather, the central argument of the book is that the Greek rationalist tradition was snuffed out by the rise of a particular form of Christianity under the Roman Empire, which emphasised faith and revelation and authority over open-ended inquiry, which um, at its best the Greek. Uh, tradition championed. I think it's a book that's been misunderstood and uh, misrepresented even in some ways as a rather simplistic um, reassertion of uh, the the enlightenment narrative of the dark ages uh, which is something that I think triggers a lot of medievalists in particular um, but actually it's a much more sophisticated book than that uh, and I think a very good one that holds up very well. I shall be interviewing Charles Freeman uh, next month uh, and publishing that interview on this substack. Um, uh, you know, he's written many books since The Closing of the Western Mind, though this is probably still his best-known book. Um, so I'll be discussing this book and, and his most recent book, or rather his, his new book, which uh, has been published, well... Um, published in October and November in the UK and the US. So that's basically uh, freshly available, um, which does tie into the closing of the Western mind. And I thought it'd be nice to read a couple of little bits from uh, that earlier book, uh, just, uh, just to anticipate that conversation, which will be published on this substack soon-ish. So I'm going to read, I've got the paperback, so I'm going to read the introduction to the paperback um, and the first short chapter from the book proper. So without further ado, uh, let us begin. So introduction to the Pimlico edition. This book deals with a significant turning point in Western cultural and intellectual history when the tradition of rational thought established by the Greeks was stifled in the 4th and 5th centuries AD. This closing of the Western mind did not extend to the Arab world where translated Greek texts continued to inspire advances in astronomy, medicine and science and so its roots must be found in developments in the Greco-Roman world of late antiquity. This book explores those developments. Before setting out my argument, it is important to define what is meant by a tradition of rational thought. The Greeks were the first to distinguish, assess and use the distinct branch of intellectual activity we know as reasoning. By the 5th century, they had grasped the principle of the deductive proof which enabled them to make complex and irrefutable mathematical proofs. 
They also set out the principles of inductive reasoning, the formulation of truths from empirical evidence. Aristotle, 384 to 322 BC, used this method to make significant advances in our understanding of the natural world. These truths, however, are always provisional. If the sun rises every day of our existence, we might assume that it will always rise, but there is no certainty of this. The Greeks recognised this as well as grasping that theories must always be the servants of facts. Describing what he has observed about the generation of bees, Aristotle notes that the facts have not been sufficiently ascertained, and if they are ever ascertained, then we must trust perception rather than theories. Yet, one should not idealise. In practice, it is impossible to disassociate observation from the influences of the wider world. Women were seen by Greek culture to be inferior to men, and empirical observations could all too easily be shaped or interpreted to sustain this as they certainly were in medicine. The astronomer Ptolemy believed the Earth was at the centre of the universe, and all his observations of the planets were interpreted so as not to conflict with this model. A successful, rational tradition needs the support and understanding of the society in which it is based, and in many parts of the Greek world, this is what it received. If truth is to be effectively advanced, any finding must be open to challenge, and this means that even the greatest thinkers must never be made into figures of authority. Aristotle's colleague Theophrastus successfully queried instances of what Aristotle claimed was spontaneous generation by noticing tiny seeds Aristotle had missed. If a tradition of rational thought is to make progress, it is essential that it builds in tolerance. No authority can dictate in advance what can or cannot be believed, or there is no possibility of progress. From the philosophical point of view, it is perhaps as important that it accepts the limits of what it can achieve in those areas of knowledge where there are no basic axioms as they are in a mathematical model, for instance, or empirical evidence from which rational thought can progress. E.R. Dodds, in his famous study, The Greeks and the Irrational, 1951, notes that, quote, the honest distinction between what is knowable and what is not appears again and again in 5th century BC thought and is surely one of its chief glories, end quote. Dodds' work reminds us, of course, that irrationality also flourished in the Greek world, but perhaps one can put up with 999 irrational minds if the thousandth is an Aristotle or an Archimedes, a Copernicus or a Newton, an inductive logic, a Darwin. It takes only one independent and effective rational mind to change the paradigms of understanding for the rest of humankind. The conventional wisdom is that Greek science and mathematics petered out in the Hellenistic period, 323-31 BC. Recently, however, scholars have shown greater appreciation of the achievements of leading figures of the 2nd century AD, such as Galen and Ptolemy. Galen's work on logic is being recognised. In the accolade of Geoffrey Lloyd, quote, Galen is probably unique among practising physicians in any age and culture for his professionalism as a logician. Conversely, he is also remarkable among practising logicians 
for his ability in and expertise, experience of, pardon, medical practice, end quote. The ingenuity of Ptolemy's astronomical calculations, forced on him as they were by his misconception of the universe, was extraordinary. But one is reminded by a recent new translation of his geography that he also tackled the problem how to represent the globe on a flat surface, introduced the minutes and seconds to divide up degrees and established the notion of grids of coordinates for mapping. So even in the Roman Empire, we are dealing with a living tradition which is making important and influential scientific advances. There was an alternative approach to rational thought, that taken by Plato, circa 429 to 347 BC. Plato believed in the reality of a world of ideas, ideas of everything from God to a table, which were eternal and unchanging in contrast to the transient world below. This world could be grasped after an arduous and intellectual journey, of which only a few were capable by means of reason. So real were the ideas that even the observations of the senses must be discarded if they conflicted with an idea as it was eventually discovered. Quote, We shall approach astronomy as we do geometry by way of problems and ignore what is in the sky if we intend to get a real grasp of astronomy, end quote, as Plato put it in the Republic. This was, of course, a challenge to the principle that facts should prevail over theories. The problem was that it was impossible to find axioms, unassailable first principles, from which one could progress to an idea such as that of beauty or the good. And the platonic journey, while offering the lure of an ultimate certainty, never seemed in practice to be able to present an idea in terms with which all could agree. The argument of this book is that the Greek intellectual tradition did not simply lose vigour and disappear. Its survival and continued progress in the Arab world is testimony to that. Rather, in the 4th and 5th centuries AD, it was destroyed by the political and religious forces which made up the highly authoritarian government of the late Roman Empire. There had been premonitions of this destruction in earlier Christian theology. It had been the Apostle Paul who declared war on the Greek rational tradition through his attacks on, quote, the wisdom of the wise and the empty logic of the philosophers, end quote, words which were to be quoted and re-quoted in the centuries to come. Then came the absorption of Platonism by the early Christian theologians. It was assumed that Christian dogma could be found through the same process Plato had advocated, through reason and would have the same certainty as the ideas. However, as with other aspects of Platonism, it proved impossible to find secure axioms from which to start the rational argument. Scriptural texts conflicted with each other. Different theological traditions had taken root in different parts of the empire. Theologians disagreed whether they should discard pagan Greek philosophy or exploit it. The result inevitably was doctrinal confusion. Augustine was to note the existence of over 80 heresies, for which read alternative ways of dealing with the fundamental issues of Christian doctrine. When Constantine gave toleration to the churches in the early 4th century, he found to his dismay that Christian communities were torn by dispute. 
He himself did not help matters by declaring tax exemptions for Christian clergy and offering the churches immense patronage, which meant that getting the right version of Christian doctrine gave access not only to heaven, but to vast resources on earth. By the middle of the 4th century, disputes over doctrine had degenerated into bitterness and even violence as rival bishops struggled to earn the emperor's favour and the most lucrative bishoprics. At a time of major barbarian attacks, the threat to order was so marked that it was the emperors who increasingly defined and enforced an orthodoxy, using hand-picked church councils to give themselves some theological legitimacy. So one finds a combination of factors behind the closing of the Western mind. The attack on Greek philosophy by Paul, the adoption of Platonism by Christian theologians, and the enforcement of orthodoxy by emperors desperate to keep good order. The imposition of orthodoxy went hand in hand with the stifling of any form of independent reasoning. By the 5th century, not only had rational thought been suppressed, there had been a substitution for it of mystery, magic and authority, a substitution which drew heavily on irrational elements of pagan society which had never been extinguished. Some who have found this argument too damning have stressed how it was Christians who who preserved the great works of the Greek philosophers by copying them from decaying papyri or parchment. The historian is indeed deeply indebted to the monks, the Byzantine civil servants and the Arab philosophers who preserved ancient texts. But the recording of earlier authorities is not the same as maintaining a tradition of rational thought. This can only be done if these authorities are then used as inspiration for further intellectual progress or as a bulwark against which to react. This happened in the Arab world, where, for instance, even the findings of a giant such as Galen were challenged and improved on, but not in the Byzantine Empire or the Christian waste. The Athenian philosopher Proclus made the the last recorded astronomical observation in the ancient Greek world in AD 475. It was not until the 16th century that Copernicus, inspired by the surviving works of Ptolemy, but aware that they would make more sense if the sun was placed at the centre of the universe, set in hand the renewal of the scientific tradition. The struggle between religion and science had now entered a new phase, one which is beyond the scope of this book. What cannot be doubted is how effectively the rational tradition had been eradicated in the 4th and 5th century. centuries. The closing of the Western mind has been ignored for all too long. I hope this book reinvigorates debate on this tolumned edifice crowned by a vault. Carved on the panels either side of him are fasces, rods bound together a symbol of authority that reaches back through the history of ancient Rome to the Etruscans. Conventionally, as those who are attuned to the more sinister aspects of modern European history will be all too well aware, an axe is fixed within the bundle, but here it is omitted and the fasces are lit. Even in ancient times, the presence of the axe was associated with tyrannical authority, so the omission suggests the omission the omission <laughs> suggests a deliberate attempt to evoke an authority that is benign rather than menacing. A setting in Rome is confirmed by the views behind the imposing structure. On one side there is part of St John Lateran, the Cathedral Church of Rome, 
fronted by an equestrian statue, believed in the 1480s, the date of this fresco, to be of the Emperor Constantine, its founder. On the other is the Porta Ripa Grande, the port alongside the River Tiber in Rome. The fresco itself is in the Carafa Chapel in Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, a Dominican church in the city. Even if the fasces are not menacing, one aspect of the fresco nevertheless is. The monk crushes a scowling old man beneath his feet. The old man is a personification of evil, and he clutches a banner with a Latin inscription, Wisdom Conquers Evil. The monk himself is none other than the great Dominican theologian Thomas Aquinas, circa 1225-74. Above him, in a roundel, are the verses from the, books, uh, from, pardon me, from the Book of Proverbs, with which he chose to begin one of his finest works, the Summa Contra Gentiles, a summary of the case against the heretics. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Also above him, on panels held by Putti, appears a declaration of the importance of the revealed word of God. The revelation of thy word gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. The most important text, however, must be that which Thomas has selected to hold in his left hand. It is from the Apostle Paul. Sapientiam sapientium perdam. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. As this book will suggest, the phrase, supported by other texts of Paul which condemn the empty logic of the philosophers, was the opening shot in the enduring war between Christianity and science. Here, Thomas is in a position of authority, defending the revelatory power of God against the wisdom of the wise. Yet this wisdom is allowed some place. Alongside the saint sit four further personifications in order from the left, those of philosophy, theology, grammar and dialectic. Philosophy, largely the study of formal logic, grammar and dialectic, the art of disputation, were the first subjects of the traditional medieval curriculum. However, though they may appear to at ease alongside Thomas, they are clearly subordinate to the word of God, as preliminaries that had to be mastered before any advanced study in theology, the longest and most challenging course could begin. Theology's prominence over the others is shown here by her crown and her hand raised to heaven. Below Thomas and his intellectual companions, two groups of men stand back from a clutter of books and manuscripts. A debate has been in progress, and it seems that its settlement has resulted in the disposal of discarded arguments. The reference here is to the 4th and 5th centuries, when the empire, newly if not fully Christianised, was rocked with debate over the nature of Jesus and his relationship with God. The Arians, followers of Arius, claimed that Jesus was a distinct and lower creation, divine perhaps, but not fully God. At the opposite extreme, the followers of Sibelius, a Roman cleric, claimed that the Godhead was one and Jesus on earth was only a temporary manifestation of that Godhead, in no way distinct from it. In the fresco, Arius stands on the left, a serious and thoughtful man as tradition records, wearing yellow robes. 
In front of him a book bearing the words of his thesis, There was a time when the sun was not, lies condemned. Sibelius, shown as an austere Roman in a red robe, gazes down on his work with its own heretical assertion, that the father is not to be distinguished from the son, likewise condemned. Other heretics, including the Persian Mani, to the right of Sibelius in a furred hood, to whose sect St Augustine belonged before his conversion to Christianity, are in the crowd. These heretics had all been subject to a specific refutation by Thomas in his works. What Thomas now upholds is the final solution to the issue, the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit have distinct personalities within a single Godhead. It is a doctrine, as Thomas himself wrote in his other great work, the Summa Theologiae, that cannot be upheld by reason, but only through faith. The triumph of faith, as depicted here by the Florentine painter Filippino Lippi, reflects the theme of this book. Faith is a complex concept, but whether it is trust in what cannot be seen, belief in promises made by God, essentially a declaration of loyalty or a virtue, it involves some kind of acquiescence in what cannot be proved by rational thought. What makes faith a difficult concept to explore is that it has both theological and psychological elements. At a psychological level, one could argue that faith must exist in any healthy mind. If we cannot trust anyone, have any optimism that all will be well, we cannot live full lives. Such faith will include positive responses to individuals, as evinced by those who met and travelled with Jesus. Here we cross a conceptual boundary, because faith in Jesus, and in particular in the saving nature of his crucifixion and resurrection as taught by Paul, was of a different order from faith in the general sense that all will be well. With the elaboration of Christian doctrine, faith came to mean acquiescence in the teachings of the churches, to be seen as a virtue in itself. In the 4th and 5th centuries AD, however, faith in this last sense achieved prominence over reason. The principles of empirical observation or logic were overruled in the conviction that all knowledge comes from God, and even in the writings of Augustine, that the human mind, burdened with Adam's original sin, is incapable of thinking for itself. For centuries, any form of independent scientific thinking was suppressed. Yet, and this is the paradox of the Carafa fresco, it was actually Thomas, through reviving the works of Aristotle, who brought reason back into theology and hence into Western thought. Once again, it was possible for rational thought and faith to coexist. We will meet the other Thomas, the Thomas who champions reason alongside faith, in the final chapter of this book. We begin by returning to ancient Greece, and exploring in particular how reason became established as an intellectual force in Western culture. Then we can see how Christianity, under the influential banner of Paul's denunciation of Greek philosophy, began to create the barrier between science and rational thought in general, and religion that appears to be unique to Christianity. Far from the rise of science challenging the, the Christian conception of God, as is often assumed by protagonists in the debate, it was Christianity that actively challenged a well-established and sophisticated tradition of scientific thinking. And there we go. Um, 
as I said, I highly recommend the book. Um, among its other virtues, it's a nice antidote, uh, as 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 are Friedman's other works, to the uh, weird fetishism of of Tom Holland in his uh, book Dominion, which credits Christianity with, well, just about everything that's ever happened. Uh, good, in particular, things that have happened. Uh, so yes, um, I've gone on quite long enough now. And uh, as I said, I'll be interviewing Charles Freeman next month. So look out for that. And meanwhile, thanks very much for listening and have a lovely week.